Scarantino, and this is the Get the Fuck Off podcast. Every week, I'm going to be talking about a new topic to help you guys get the fuck off the shit that doesn't serve you anymore. But first, let me tell you a little bit about me. I used to work as a bartender, and I lived in the New York City bar scene. I smoked between a pack or two a day, and I was what you'd call quite overweight. I learned that the secret to adopting a healthy lifestyle is a series of mindset shifts. Unfortunately, they don't always come with an owner's manual, so I decided to start this podcast to give you guys the nuts and bolts without you having to do all the research on your own. Getting healthy does not mean you have to sacrifice your outstanding personality, and it actually can be quite a fun journey. I'm really excited to have you guys on that journey with me. Let's get off together. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to the Get the Fuck Off podcast. I'm here today with another guest I'm so excited about. This is Dr. Eric Fields, who I actually have met in person in the in the COVID era. So that's an exciting thing. And it turns out he does a lot of work um, with addiction and weight loss. And he is a licensed psychologist here in New York City. Eric, how are you doing today? good to have you i'm i'm doing well i i'm definitely doing well this is uh a whole new world during covid and still adjusting to it you know with the zoom sessions and you know doing therapy remotely but um i think it's been pretty positive in the sense that you know my patients are very very committed much more so now than i feel like they had been in the past because it's just so convenient so that that's been great so i i think that's been one positive that's come out of this whole craziness that we're, we're going through right now that's really awesome i know that i wanted you to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing um you are in private practice now and i you do and you do harm reduction you're, you specialize in harm reduction the harm reduction principle right can you tell me more about that and and kind of a little bit about the work you're doing with your patients at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for like the longest time, America's kind of had this love affair with the anonymous groups and that whole movement was born here. Um, not to go into the whole history, but that's kind of been like, you know, the main go-to approach for treating addictions, right? Like if you went to your physician, you said, I'm struggling with an addiction or substance use disorder, Right away, it's like, all right, you got to go to meetings. And so it wasn't really questioned for like the longest time. Like even even like in the therapy world where we were still kind of doing our own thing and treating it according to our evidence-based practices and our therapeutic techniques, um, it it wasn't really questioned. And I don't have a really good um, rationale for why. Um, maybe because, you know, things don't get questioned until someone finally says, wait a minute, what the heck are we doing here? There's gotta be another way to do this. And so I I guess that's kind of how it all started. And people are just like, you know, this shouldn't be like this only approach, right. To help people where it just gets kind of like prescribed to them, like 
in this blanket fashion with whatever right. kind of compulsive behavior they have. Well, you know, we you also can, talked yeah. about 12 step programs and that whole element of spirituality, which I have spirituality in my life and I, and I love it and it's great. And I found it and wonderful. Okay. I found God. A lot of people are just put off by that at the outset. So they don't even want to go into 12 step programs. You know, they don't even want to, they don't want to entertain it. And also there was that idea. I mean, and again, I, and I think you and I agree on this is that whatever works for you, that's what you should do. Like if it works for you, good. If you got to write the number of days you've been sober on your arm, great. You know, if that works for you, but a lot of these, the, the research and I, and I read this in, in Annie Grace's book, this naked mind that, that generally sometimes the outcome is better otherwise when mm-hmm. it when it's not focused on, a, on an element of, of willpower and I don't know if you, do you agree with that or do you I mean I know obviously you're not working with people going into 12-step programs but what are your findings on that so so here's the thing right it's like if you look at that as one possible um way of treating addiction or recovery and you know people, there are going to be certain individuals that are going to gravitate towards that. You know, like we can speculate about personality types. Um, There are people that just get attracted to, um, you know, definite rules, right? They they like a rule-based system that says like, all right, these are the 12 steps and you got to follow them. And this is what you got to do. Um, There's not a lot of forethought that goes into it. and, And that's fine, you know, if it works for them. The problem is that it only seems to work for a small subset of people, right? So like, mm-hmm. I feel like the efficacy rates are somewhere between 10 to 14% from what I've heard in the research. And you know, that you gotta take it with a grain of salt because it's like, you know, it is an anonymous group. So how many people did they really get in their sample to come forward? Um, you know, does that really represent the amount of people that's successful for? But I, I kind of feel that it works for a very specific type of person. And that's great. And then, but then there are like all these other people. So like on the internet, like you'll have a lot of like these staunch, you know, a people, right. right. Um, and, and maybe those are the, the people I'm talking about. But the problem is, is they like misrepresent the masses right. because the way they speak is like, it works really well. I've been doing it for a while. It's the only way to do it. It's great. And blah, 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 blah. blah. I feel great. My life is great. Don't ever question the AA way, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> And meanwhile, it's like you, you get the impression like, well, 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 shit, I guess it, you know, that must be the way to, to go. But meanwhile, what they're really talking or the people they're really talking to is a small subset of people that this really works for, right? So they're not talking to the masses. They're not talking about, so all the other people where they're like, no, wait a minute. Like, I don't like this spirituality component or I don't like the 12 step notion. I don't like people telling me I got to follow these steps. I don't agree with the steps, yada, yada, yada. So I don't believe why- I'm weak. I don't believe I'm, I don't exactly. know if they talk because I've never actually gone to an AA meeting. So I don't, I don't know, but I mean, I know that some people don't like that powerlessness factor yeah. because when yeah. I stopped drinking, I never felt like, like I, I was powerless. I, I right. felt that I was gaining a whole new world of opportunity by giving it up. So, you know, I didn't like that language, but not to say that there's anything wrong with that language. But anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, Continue, no, no. And, no. And I'm glad that you, you interjected with that because it's very true there. And I say this all the time, you know, because I always kind of get a rap 
a bad rap for for being like the anti-AA guy. <laughs> and meanwhile, it's like <laughs> I'm really not. Like I'm totally fine with like if that's if that's what you found to be helpful, that is fantastic. I think I get the bad rap for that because there are certain principles that they espouse that I don't agree with that I feel can be a little dangerous. Like for example, our society kind of having this knee-jerk reaction that like that is the one size fits all treatment for everyone is dangerous because here's the thing for all the people it doesn't work for if you're basically saying like no you have to go to these meetings or else you're screwed there's nothing else you can do many of these people are going to say well then screw it i'm not doing that and so now we have all these people that could be helped potentially that never get help because they feel like well this is the only way i don't like this way so therefore i'm not going to get help Right. And then there are other things too, where I feel like the anonymous groups, some of their philosophies, like make people feel unduly badly about themselves. Like, for example, like I hate this whole day one philosophy shit. Like this is something that is a big pet peeve of mine, right? So you have somebody who's done like 185 days sober, right? Yeah. And also like one day on day 186, they go out and have some drinks and then they go to the group and the group is like, <gasps> oh shit. Like you got to start counting days again from day one. And like, if that is not the most demoralizing shit that I've ever heard in my life for me, and just to give you a contrast of like the new approach that I practice, we don't say that you're back at day one. We say, okay, and now you're at day 187. Do you see what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you were sober for 185 days. Exactly. You slipped up. Okay, so we're going to continue on. That's what I was. So I wanted to segue into the new approach. So tell me more about that. So in addition to that, what other things would you like to uh, explain to people who might not be familiar with it? So the new approach is very different because we don't have roles, uh, rules rather, and we don't force feed anything down our patient's throat. We basically say, the question I always start my sessions off with is, if you could look five years into the future, and I had a crystal ball, and you looked at yourself, what behaviors, and this is actually a solution-focused therapy approach, what behaviors would you be doing that would prove to you that you're living the life that you want to lead, right? So what are you doing? What does that look like? So how often, and I want specifics. I want, you know, I'm a cognitive behavioral psychologist, so I'm a behaviorist. I want specifics. Mm -hmm. Tell me. What are you doing? Are you drinking any alcohol? Are you doing any Coke? Are you um, gambling? You know, if that's your thing. What are you doing in the future? How much of it are you in, doing in the future? And what other things are you doing? What is your life going to look like that is going to make you happy? And only that person can answer that question. Now, therapy is a truth-seeking process, right? So at the end of the day, I feel like my role is to, to guide them to the truth, but whatever the truth is for them. So in other words, I'm not kind of forcing the truth on them and saying, oh, you're in denial if you're saying that in the future I'm drinking moderately and responsibly, or I'm only doing blow once a month, you know, and I'm totally fine with that. That would be great for me. Oh, you're in denial. You know, like, no, the, the, the answer <laughs> is... I'm abstinent and I've been absent for a long, long time. And I've realized I'm powerless and it's a disease and blah, blah, blah. So this approach is, it starts with what 
the person really values and what they want. And that is a range. So that right. can go anywhere from, I don't ever want to have this substance addictive behavior, fill in the blank, whatever it is in my life again. I want to have it in my life to some degree. I want to have it a lot in my life, you know, to a large degree, but just not to the point it is now. Or I don't really want to stop doing what I'm doing in terms of the substance, but I want my life to change. And that's a kind of principle that I feel like for many years, it's just been like, you know, this idea that you, you have to give this thing up before you make progress in your mental health, in your physical health, in these other, in your work life, in your social life. That addiction is, you know, this problem that is going to interfere with all these areas of your life, which is true. It can, but that the only way to get to those areas is to give up the addiction. And we say that's not true. That we've seen our patients make a lot of progress before they've ever cut down usage at all in terms of just the way that they interact with people more, just in terms of their work productivity. You know, to give you like an extreme example, if I have somebody who is consumed by substances on a daily basis, if I can get a small goal, if they're telling me that the, the, the problem right now is I'm feeling like my whole entire life is so unmanageable, I can't seem to get any area of my life together, um, my hygiene sucks, I don't take showers, I don't take care of myself. If I can start with that, I know it sounds so silly, but if I can start no, with that. No, 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 it does. Right? To start taking care of themselves, just right. take a shower every day. Right. Get and, up, I mean, clean yes. the apartment. You can do it drunk, I don't care. But just freaking do something mm -hmm. to move in that direction. That small progress is progress nonetheless. You know, it's wonderful. It's wonderful because you know, as well as I do, and I think that we kind of we kind of approach this a lot of the same way as me as a, as a coach, is that you, that it's just the result of the problem. Your addiction is the result of everything else. So if you were trying to move your life forward in different areas, that's where you start. You don't start with the, okay, like I'm going to go and I'm going to tackle the problem. I'm going to tackle what the problem really is. So if your life is unmanageable, you know, I always talk about the one degree shift. It's like, okay, well, what can I do? What is the one degree that I can move forward? So if Joe over there is taking two showers a week, maybe we could get Joe to take a shower every day. Exactly. Maybe that's Joe's, that's what Joe has to do. Exactly. And, and, and it starts there. I think that it's really great work. I read on your, your website that you also work with people and weight loss. And a lot of people come to me about weight loss and a lot of people, and I, and I, and I don't, I don't get angry. I'm not, I get a little frustrated because a lot of people come to me insisting on a bunch of boxes that they can check off that will make them thin. And I, say, you know, I I've been heavy and I've been thin in my life. I've been heavy many times and I've been thin many times and I've been thin for quite a while right now. But if you don't deal with, I mean, my finding is if you don't deal with the underlying unresolved issues as to why you're overeating or undereating or any type of, of weight problem that doesn't, uh, it doesn't resolve itself. It returns. So what are your experiences in this and how are you helping your patients 
that struggle with that. So I feel the same exact way that you just outlined there that, you know, and I, I find the same way for any kind of compulsive behavior, really, that they're just symptoms of the problem. And so if you don't, like you said, resolve the problem, if you don't resolve the root causes, you know, it's kind of like that game, you know, back in the day, that whack-a-mole game. Remember that game at the arcades? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, right? Yeah. <laughs> so like. When we had like, arcades. Exactly. <laughs> so like you know you can keep whacking the mole you know what i'm saying but it's just going to pop up somewhere else like you have to take care of the the root causes otherwise there is such a thing as symptom substitution which i think you know it it gets exaggerated to a degree you know at a certain point i know like the anonymous groups they're like oh you're doing that too much oh that's you know that's the alcoholic in you and now you do well you know listen shit at the end of the day we all do a little something too much. I mean, all of us could probably uh, qualify as being addicted to technology these days, right? I mean, like we all have something, right? You know what I'm saying? But at the end of the day, you're not, you're not, you are going to start, you know, getting drawn to some other unhealthy behavior if you do not get to the root causes. So I work the same exact way with weight loss as I do with substances. It's, it's using psychology and therapy to figure out, you know, why they're having these issues with food. And to be honest with you, I started out in the eating disorders field because I was so fascinated by eating disorders. Because, you know, with substances, you can just stay away from it, right? Like you don't need alcohol to live. Like you could live with, mm-hmm. I mean, some might debate that, but you know, you know, you really don't physiologically need it, right? So like, but like you can't, you can't like not eat, right? So like people with an eating disorder, like they don't have the quote luxury of being abstinent. Like they exactly, they don't have, they have to learn, right? They have mm-hmm. to learn that. Same thing with someone with a sexual addiction. I mean, you know, Many people want to have a relationship, an intimate relationship, and, and just not having sex is not an option. So, you know, you, at the end of the day, that got me, you know, thinking that, wait a minute, like if people with food addictions and eating disorders and sex addictions can have to learn how to have a healthy relationship, why has it been so pervasive in our society that we teach people that they can't ever have a healthy relationship with substances if they've ever had a problem. That if you've ever had a problem, you're doomed, you're, you're screwed, and that's it, you can never do it again. When people with eating disorders, time and time again, absolutely do not have that luxury, they have to learn that. They so have to. the only real difference I see with dealing with like weight loss or things like that is if you're dealing with that kind of compulsion, that abstinence is off the table. Right. Mm -hmm. Because like, you know, as a coach with weight loss, you don't ever want to prescribe for people that there are forbidden foods. Right. Like, oh, never. Never. If they say anything is bad, you're like, no, no. And and I even have to I even have like a, a library of resources that I that I've given to several clients just about learning to have a more positive relationship with food, but also a, a positive relationship with their bodies, because there's so much of society that's tied up in that. 
And, you know, I don't know if you've ever read Judy Hollis's Fat is a Family Affair, but it's a, it's an older book. It's a great book. And she started her work with alcoholics. And then, and then, so kind of the reverse of you, you know, yeah. and says this, that food is deeply personal because you need it to live and you take it into your body and it becomes part of your body. Right. So you have to, you have to. And, and, and it's interesting that you brought up a sexual addiction because it's the same thing. What are you supposed to do? Say, yes, I'm, I'm intimate with you. I'm in love with you, but I can't have sex with you because then I'm going to go and have sex with everyone. Because right, then the disease is activated, the disease, and I can't control it because it's a disease. And so therefore, I can't do it, right? That's it. It's a disease. Mm -hmm. So it's so got to be renegotiated. Yeah, exactly. 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 We can only get away with this disease model of substance uses because there is the luxury of abstinence. Right. When you start looking at other compulsive behavior patterns, you realize that, wait a minute, if it can be done for food, if it can be done for sex, if it can be done for all these other things that people get addicted to that they just can't give up, right? It's a human need. Then it begs the question, then why, why, why are so many of these people doomed and they can't ever learn to have a healthy relationship with alcohol or this or that or a healthier relationship? So my approach with weight loss and food addiction really is you know a little simpler in the sense that or actually let me take that back it's more difficult because they don't have the luxury of abstinence, of abstinence. now that now, i want to go back to, work to that more on dealing with the food and having the relationship with food they don't have mm -hmm. the luxury of that so going back to having the the luxury of abstinence what do you do you think in my experiences, people, I think society plays a huge part in, in the way that we're approaching addiction because society likes to say, don't ever acknowledge that this is addictive ever until it's too late. So like with an alcoholic, like alcohol is extremely addictive. So if you have one glass of wine every night, that's a dependency to alcohol. Right. Like that's a dependency. The next right. day when you feel like, I really go for a glass of wine. That's a dependency. I don't feel that. I used to when I drank every day, but society wants you to go, no, 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 I don't have that. I don't have that. I don't have that. I don't have that. I don't have that until all of a sudden, oh shit, I have that. So right. how much of the way that society approaches all of this, I, I mean, how much of that do you think, number one, is, is part of the problem? And number two, how much does it piss you off if you think it is? <laughs> right, right. I mean, so that's a great question. Like, why why are people so fearful to admit that, oh, shit, I've developed a dependency, right? Or that there are certain things that we're more okay with saying that we've, you know, developed a, an addiction to watching The Bachelor or some other, you know, thing that we get, right. you know. Yeah. Um, but, we're, but we're not with, like, alcohol and substances and all that. So, I mean, that's an interesting point. I mean, off the cuff just what I kind of think is people are fearful of saying that because it's gotten such like this negative stigma in our society. You know, we use these terms like, and they all come from, well, I shouldn't say all of them, but most of them come from the anonymous groups and those philosophies, which are, oh, you're powerless. 
you know, mm-hmm. you have yeah. a disease, like, you know, this is an intractable illness is what they call it. It's not intractable. It's treatable. It's, it's, it's not easy. It takes a lot of freaking work. I mean, you know, if you've been doing the same kind of uh, pattern of behavior for three, four five years, you know, it takes a lot of work to, to change that. But I, I think our whole society and, and that's, that's what the harm reduction approach is all about. It's like utilizing positive psychology. Positive psychology is not this, you know, um, you know, blow it up your butt kind of everything is great. And, you know, everything's, you know, optimistic and, and I love life and life is great and this and that. Positive psychology is just saying that people are not as helpless <laughs> as we think. Like we really are a lot more resilient and resourceful. We get through a lot of shit. We go through a lot of crap and we deal with a lot of stuff on a day-to-day basis. Um, You know, give us some damn credit, man. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, absolutely. a lot of shit. You know what I'm saying? So positive psychology is all about saying like, this is not like a doom situation, like there is a, a possibility, a good possibility that this person's got the inner resources with some guidance, with some help to get past this. And we know that a lot of people have gotten over addictions with no therapy, with nothing other than maybe some self-reading. So, and, and this, these are facts that are not readily available to the public. You know, we don't say this, you know, they're not advertised. You'll find them in the DSM-5, which is a diagnostic manual, you know, that we all use, right? You'll find all that research in there. I'm privy to it as a professional, but most of the general public has no idea about these statistics, that most people have gotten over their compulsive behavior with absolutely no help at all. Um, actually, I, I'm sorry, am I saying most people? A, a lot of people, not most people, sorry. A lot, a lot of, people. of people. A lot of people. We'll have retract. Been able to do it. Right, yeah. <laughs> a good a amount. On that one. A good amount. A good of amount, we'll say. Exactly, yes, yes. I mean, and I never saw A larger amount have gotten over with some kind of help, whether it be yeah. a recovery coach like you, uh, a psychologist, a social worker, an anonymous group. I mean, whatever, right? So- People are not as screwed as society makes it out to be. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are so averse to saying, oh, shit, I have a dependency. Because then they think, oh, shit, well, what does this mean? Right. And it's like, well, you don't need to go. You don't need it. What does it, what does it mean? What does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. It means okay. <laughs> and, inter- and interestingly human. enough. Yeah, absolutely. We talked, uh, you and I have talked before about this, but about the the fact that even though you're not necessarily, you joked like, oh, people think I'm the anti-AA guy, but <laughs> let's be real. Okay. People are sometimes not wanting to go to AA for all of the various reasons that they don't want to go. Okay, cool. Great. We know that that's a thing. We have though, you and I talked about the importance of community, the importance of seeking out at least one person. If it's therapy, if it's you, if it's seeing a coach, if it's me, if it's community, what are some other communities that are really great that people can seek out? Because I know you have a list in your head of just a few. Mm-hmm. Of So, I mean, there are meetup groups out there, right? And there's plenty of meetup groups that are like, you know, popular all around the country. I mean, there are meetup groups for 
social anxiety. There are meetup groups for badminton. There are meetup groups for bowling. Mm -hmm. And there are meetup groups for people that substance uh, that struggle with substance use uh, problems and gambling addiction and everything else. So the meetup groups, I mean, that's a sense of community right there. You, you're talking about, you know, getting together with people that have similar struggles to you. On that general level, I see nothing wrong with the anonymous groups. That's great. I'm all for it. You know, that I think is very important to be able to acknowledge that I'm not alone. There are other people that struggle and to learn from each other and to kind of, you know, build this, this teamwork, you know, where we're all helping each other. I'm, I'm totally on board with that. I mean, we're human beings. We're social creatures. We thrive socially, right? I mean, there's research that literally shows that if one spouse dies, the life expectancy of the other spouse is significantly reduced. We need people. So that's proven. And there's tons of research that shows that. So I'm all for that community. So the meetup groups, and then there are other kinds of abstinence-based programs that do not have the whole dogma of anonymous groups like smart recovery. You know, mm -hmm. there are... Um, a lot of uh, uh, non-secular groups uh, out there, ones that are tailored just for women, one that, uh, ones that are uh, tailored for um, gay, you know, diff different you know, groups that are tailored for different people in recovery. Uh, moderation management is another one that is based off of cognitive behavioral psychology. And that is basically what it says. It's trying to help you have a healthier relationship with alcohol or other drugs and learn how to be more moderate with your usage. So there are a bunch of them that are out there. It's just that they don't seem to be advertised as much or that the people just don't know of them as much. And Why do you think that is? Or do you think it's because we as a society think that all of the, that, that using alcohol and drugs is... Yeah positive i mean i'm just guessing like what do you why do you think that that would be that people don't know about these resources because i think the anonymous groups have been king for the longest time and people don't question it you know th there's something a little bit scary and unsettling when when things just go as being accepted and not challenged right mm -hmm. so these these were created by a stockbroker not a mental health expert just saying and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Just saying, a stockbroker, but whatever. And I wonder they, how you, I wonder how you got the, the name, the anti-AA guy. <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, maybe listen. There's some listen. truth to that. I don't know. Please continue. Please continue. <laughs> so I mean, you know, I don't. It's like you know what it is. It's like it was America's baby, right? We created this. And it has helped a lot of people. Like, I'm not discounting that. It has helped many, many people. Sure. But I will say, in the rest of the world, that is not the go-to approach for treatment. So if you're talking about, like, European countries, like, that is not the go- Are they popular over there? Absolutely. They're popular around the world. But our country has a love affair with the, with the anonymous groups. It's our baby. We kind of feel like it's our thing. And- it just has gone on as being unquestioned for like the longest time. And whenever anybody has tried to research these groups and produces negative results, and this is why anonymous groups always get this kind of like stigma of being like a cult, 
Well, because they act like a cult, they'll discount the results and they'll say like, oh, that's bullshit or no, no, that's not true. Or, you know, you didn't get a good enough sample or this and that. Like they, they never, they, there's no questioning of the 12 steps. Like as a psychologist, I'm also a scientist. So that means I know about research. I know about good research methodology. And as a good scientist, as a good researcher, you have to question yourself. You have to say like, okay, is there another reason why this is or is not working? Could this be explained by other factors? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, is my sample representative enough? Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, as a good researcher, you have to really question your techniques and, and ad nauseum. Do you know? Oh my God, you make, yeah, you make your argument. And then you tear your your own argument to shreds. Absolutely. I, that, that was all of grad school for me. I mean, I, I remember reading, like just learning that skill yeah. as a social scientist to be like, this is everything I know to be true. Okay, let me just slash it up. Absolutely. Well said. I mean, well said. That That's it in a nutshell, right? That's what mm -hmm. you're supposed to be doing. But they don't do that. What they do is they have this confirmatory bias, which is they'll only acknowledge good results and they won't talk about any of the negatives <laughs> or for the people it doesn't work for right. or you know or like, why oh, that women. might be you know exactly. why why would exactly. this person you know, I have a big thing about like when you say the word powerless because I, I I've talked about this I might have already talked about it in this since we've been talking but that whole thing about how when you bring in a concept of power and willpower you make people feel like I am going without this and my life therefore is bad if this is not a part of it and it's like i can't think of a thing that would make me want to drink more than thinking oh my life is terrible without this it's just terrible you know you tell me Absolutely. that my life is terrible without alcohol and just count the days until i can have alcohol again i'll be like Oh God, I, I need, where's the whiskey? Like, that's absolutely, gonna be absolutely, absolutely. And there's a circular logic that they have. So in other words, like if you've been sober for a long, long time, but you're still acting like a, use my air quotes here, alcoholic, mm -hmm. then they have this great term to describe you, Andy. They call you a dry drunk. What a positive way of describing somebody who's been, I'm dead serious, sober for six months. And they're basically saying like, you're just as bad as you were with the alcohol. So where's the motivation? And it's funny, but as a psychologist, like we kind of look at this and say like, well, duh, of course they're the same person because you've never treated the root freaking causes. You've yeah. never got any issues. Ever, yes. them, take this out of your life and everything's gonna be good. And then when their life is not good and they're like, son of a bitch, my life still sucks. Then you blame them. And you say like, in other words, they're saying like, follow our program and your life is great. I followed your program, my life still sucks. Well, then that's your issue. <laughs> You know, well, that's another, another thing. And I, I, I'm not, again, like I haven't done the research that you have on this, but what I will say is that I know that a lot of times, and you and I have talked about this before too, that when you have an addiction of some sort, it's only human nature to want to replace that with something. So, you know, that yeah. I'm an avid runner and I am not going to pretend that there's a portion of my running that is not a replacement for, you know, what was my smoking and my drinking and my overeating or whatever the fuck. And I'm not even going to pretend that that's not the case because I know that it is. But I think what happens with, with Alcoholics Anonymous 
is that, and I don't know anything about NA. I mean, I don't know anything about, I know that they all have the same basic structure and I yep, think that, you know, yep. some people need whatever, but I think a lot of the, the times what that is, is that people, I, and when I say people, I mean, people that attend these meetings, people that go to these programs have, I mean, I've read that they will replace the addiction with the anonymous group itself. Like that yeah. takes the place. Yeah. Well, it's like that, that doesn't help you. you it's right. not like you're, you're taking something that gives you joy. Like, okay, well maybe you stop drinking and you've really decided that you mm-hmm. like to knit. I mean, I don't fucking know. I mean, like whatever people, you know, or you like to run or you like to volunteer for community service or you, but at least then you're moving into something that you enjoy. Right. Whereas if you're using a program to fill all of that, it's still so encompassing of your identity. Right. You know what I mean? Definitely. Absolutely. And that's the whole thing. Like, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say, oh, you guys are substituting right now because now you're eating sweets or now you're doing this or now you're doing that. But it's okay to be addicted to our meetings. That's that's the exception. That's cool, right? <laughs> it's like- yeah. If you're going to say that substitution is bad, then you should also acknowledge that a lot of people are substituting the meetings for the same thing. I mean, what's the difference? Here's the whole thing, right, Andy? Like, what's the difference if you use the meetings to get sober and you become addicted to them or you become addicted to running or you become addicted to knitting or you become addicted to Mm -hmm. any other more positive thing? And that's really what harm reduction is all about. It's like, can we make positive changes? Like, can we move in a positive direction? So my patients have done all sorts of things across the spectrum to get better in terms of ranging from not cutting down the substance use at all, but being a better boyfriend, girlfriend, son, daughter, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. Or better worker, blah, blah, blah. From that to cutting down just a little bit, they used to drink 12 beers a day. Now they're down to eight to um, substituting pot for drinking. They don't drink anymore, but now they smoke pot every night, but they don't have as bad of a reaction to the pot. It doesn't have as bad of an, uh, an impact on their life. Right. Um, it's not you know, causing the same kind of turmoil as alcohol was. So, they, so they're switching to a substance that is less harmful same thing with opioids. You know, I have a lot of patients that had an opioid use disorder and we know how bad they can be and have right. switched to pot or something different, something less harmful for them. Marijuana so, is not an addictive drug. drug. I mean, it's, 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 it's a, it has, you have to be socialized to learn even to enjoy marijuana. So if you can get somebody that is addicted to, you know, opiates or alcohol, which are highly addictive substances, and oh, maybe they just smoke a little weed every night, which is legal in what, 13 states and soon is going to be, you know, I think that's a win. Exactly. That's what it's all about. It's all about the win. And most importantly, and this is where it differs from that old school kind of philosophy the win is defined by the patient. I have had patients that have said to me, I read your website. I love your approach. I don't want to be abstinent. And everywhere I go, everyone's saying I have to have a problem and I have to be abstinent. And you're the first person that says you don't need to be abstinent. And 
we used to have this knee-jerk reaction in therapy that still permeates our field to this day, where therapists would literally demand that you be abstinent for a period of time before they would even start seeing you. This is the most ludicrous shit in the world. Think about this. Think about if you went to a therapist and you went to the therapist and said, listen, I'm really struggling with depression. And they said, Andy, come back to me in a month when the depression is gone and then I'll start working with you. I mean, it just is the most batshit crazy. I don't even know where these things have come from. I'm telling you. But so so where, where we come from is, you know, like wherever you want to go is where we're going to be. And that those goals frequently and often change. I've had patients that have looked me up and said, I want to go with you because you're not going to force me to be abstinent and you're going to work with what goals I want. And they say like, I just want to stop drinking as much as you know, uh, that I do on the weekend. I don't want to drink on the weekend anymore. I just want to reduce drinking during the day, or I just don't want to do Coke anymore, but I'm okay doing these other substances or whatever mm-hmm. it is they're trying to give up. And then after several months, they come to the conclusion that, you know what, maybe I could with three or four or five or six more years of therapy, eventually learn to have a healthy relationship with Coke or, or alcohol or that, but it's just not worth it. And, yeah. and so abstinence just becomes like the light bulb, the logical choice. And so, you know, I've also kind of been looked at as the, the, you know, anti-abstinent guy. And, and that's not me at all either, because many of my patients do choose abstinence, but the difference is they choose it. They right. never feel like I forced that goal on right. them. Because once and you I'm, do it, it's it, it it changes the mindset. So you know, yeah. I'm a my you know, I'm a mindset coach and I mean I I the idea that if you say to somebody, you have to be abstinent and you say it going into er- anything, that person already has a set of expectations about how they believe that is going to go. And it doesn't matter, like with their work with you, they're already they're believing a different narrative. So it's kind of like the New Year's resolution people. I always have this visual that I like to paint over how all these people run to a starting line of a race. And then two weeks in is a big cliff (laughs) and they get to two weeks and they all fall off. And you see all these bodies at the bottom of the cliff. See, I'm a morbid person. So I like to think about that. But what it is, is that the reason that that happens is because all those people started off already with the thought process of how it was going to go. And they never bother to change who they are. They just go with the thing. So with telling somebody that's addicted to a substance, any substance that's lived their way, their life, whatever way for however long you have to be abstinent. They already have this idea of how it's going to go because they've likely already tried. So they're probably already going into it with this bitter idea. And also they are not then going to be doing the, they're already just, they're just going into it with a sour taste. Cause you know, as well as I do, that there is, a, there's so much of an element of changing your perception of you. Yeah. And you, sometimes people need to have that with them and they need to carry, I mean, I'm fucking changed how many things about my life. I didn't give up alcohol for years, years. And eventually I was like, okay, like, I don't, I don't really want to drink anymore. I, I don't, this isn't really worth it. Cause the balancing act was, but I, I balanced it. I balanced it through many marathon training seasons. I ba- balanced it through and eventually, but if you had said to me, no, 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 in the very beginning of your, whatever, you have to give up alcohol. I would have been like, fuck you. 
<laughs> that one, oh yeah, alcohol is enjoyable as hell. I mean, I'm not even gonna. And for so many reasons, right? Like number one, we know that people are never going to be that motivated unless it comes from them. Like mm-hmm. they need to be the ones that make that decision. Like I've had patients come to me that say, um, I'm coming to see you because my spouse wants me to see you. And that's fine. But if that is their main motivation, then, you know, their, their chances of success are dire. It yeah. really, they really are, right? If they come to me and they say like, they want me to change, but I also really, really want to change, that's fine. Like, I feel like if it's like 50-50 or then it starts shifting more towards the patient where it's like 70% them and 30% their spouse, like that's okay. Once it starts going the other way, like, well, it's 20% me and 80% her. Like, you know, like they're mm-hmm. the main ones that want me to change then it's, it's just not happening, right? Or if it does right. happen, it's not sustainable. So that's, that's you know, that, that's an issue. But I mean, it's got to come from them, you know? And I've had some patients that literally have made the decision that they need to leave their partner because it's, it's literally like the choice was, I love my booze so much. I love it more than my partner. And so therefore, my partner is not having it in any way, shape or form my choice is to stay with the booze and there is no judgment here this is a no judgment zone in terms of you know where i come from whatever is going to make you happy i'm going to try my best to guide them in the sense that i want them to make the most well-informed decision i want them to make a decision that's really true to themselves but if that's the truth if they really this is a non-negotiable for them right and it's the same as like if you had a partner who was like obsessed with car shows and like every week they went to car shows, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, honey, like I'm tired of you always going to car shows like on the weekends. That's our time together. I want to spend time with you. And they're like, well, you can come to the car shows with me. And you're like, well, mm-hmm. I'm not really into the car shows, dude. So I really don't want to be really going to the car shows with you all the time. Listen, and I know this is a out. hypothetical, but my last relationship was this. Oh, Except okay. that it, it was not car shows. It was gun things. He was uh-huh. a, he was uh-huh. in the gun industry and he went to shoots. Okay. On the re- and he always went there to the same go. shoots. And right. in the wintertime, it was snowmobiling. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> here I am talking about my ex. But, like, but those were non-negotiables for him. Right. And he was going to do that. And honestly, it was better that it ended because now he's with somebody that likes those things so it's amazing how his happiness has flourished and how they're together and i'm very happy because i i would have hated so sometimes you know and i hate to say this i mean and and i'm not you know i i mean i'm not necessarily saying you know pick alcohol in your life obviously i'm not saying that because you know i'm a a person that 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 is coaching people to help them you know stop drinking however i i do believe that you should move in the direction of what makes you happy. So if you're a person, yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. And there are obviously things in your life that will make you happy. And if, you know, there's, if there's other external factors that are affecting, I mean, this is why people go to therapy because they'll, they'll discover these things, you know, that with, with you, they will make these discoveries. Right. And, and that's my job, right? It's, it's to get them to the truth, whatever that is, right? 
like, I don't want the situation where they're like, I choose alcohol, then all of a sudden, like, you know, a year later, they're like, I made the biggest mistake of my life. Like, I let her mm-hmm. go. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't want that kind of situation. But at the same time, they have to be honest with themselves. Like, if this relationship is not working because their partner is very against their substance use and they don't have an issue with it, well, then the issue is the relationship, in my view, right? Because from my point of view, and this is, a departure from like what has been espoused in our society about anyone with any kind of like dependency that like, you know, if you have this or, you know, you're, you're excessively imbibing in these substances, then you absolutely have to get it out of your life. And, and I don't necessarily believe that in the sense that that needs to be this blanket prescription for everybody. I think Mm -hmm. that for most people, that's true. And they're going to discover that. I mean, most of the people that I work with want to reduce their usage or get rid of it altogether because it's an issue, right? Right. But I have definitely run into people that have come to me thinking that they need to because society makes them feel like they need to. Like, oh, I'm over the American Medical Association's recommendations of what I should be drinking as a male age 25. Right. So that's why I'm coming to see you or because, you know, some people in my life say that I drink too much. Do you have a problem with it? Is it interfering with your life? Do you feel like it's problematic? Well, no, I love it. You know, like, yeah, there's times it may cause a problem here and there, but there's times in life any of our behaviors are going to cause a problem here and there. So this kind of philosophy that we practice is it's really non-judgmental and it's really like whatever is going to make you happy. And it's not manipulative. It's not kind of like, oh, yeah, we'll just go along with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep drinking your 12 beers a day. I know you'll come to the truth. No, (laughs) there's no hidden agenda. It really, I mean, there are people that, you know, have been drinking like, you know, a bottle of vodka a day, and now they're just, you know, pounding a bottle on the weekend, and they're happy as a clam. They're like, this is great, man. Like, you know, I didn't really want to be drinking during the week, but I love my booze and it's not affecting my my work anymore. I get up for work, no problem in the morning and Friday and Saturday night, I hit it hard. And, and you're helping them move to okay. that point. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's. I think that that's really, really valuable because I think that everything happens, as I said before, in micro shifts, in one degree shifts. And <clears throat> excuse me, if you can get somebody to that point, if you can get somebody to that point, just so that they have a little bit more control over things in their life that are important to them, and they can get that time at their job back, that isn't, that isn't, you know, now that that part isn't terrible. Yeah, maybe the last little bit they'll be ready for. But, yeah. you, know, you know, if you can just free up that space for them. Exactly. So I guess I, I know that we've we've been talking a while. I do have one more question for you. And then um, you can tell everyone where to find you. But just when people come to see you, what can they expect? Like, what are the things that they can expect in the first week or so working with you? So aside from it being a non-judgmental approach, meeting them where they're at in terms of what they want, uh, you know, for their future goals and all that. I mean, a lot of the first session is really that, really trying to get down to brass, brass tacks in terms of what do you want out of your life? What's going to make you happy? 
I do not focus solely on the substance use, compulsive behavior, addiction, blah, 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 blah. My approach is what I call a whole person approach. It's one-stop shopping. We're there to work on everything because everything is connected. Mm-hmm. We work on job-related issues. We work on dating life and romantic partner issues. We work on emotional issues, coping skill issues. And most importantly, we work on the root causes, whether it be social anxiety disorder, untreated ADHD that they're using cocaine for, um, depression, um, a personality floor or you know, eccentricity that causes them issues, um, you know, trauma, which so many of us have. I mean, so it's many. unbelievable. I mean, you know, trauma is not just this big capital T in terms of military war action and everything else. You know, a lot of us have experienced the small T traumas, which are, you know, bullying when we were younger or like, you know, unkind ways our family treated us or, yeah. I mean, we, we've had a lot of injuries along the way. And, and that is behind so much of this so often, right? So it's really working through all of that. You know, a lot of people say like, oh, you're a kind of behavioral therapist, so you don't talk about the past. No, that's not true. We talk about the past. We talk about the pre- We talk about everything because everything is interrelated. So to answer your question, when they come to me, it's like assessing their entire life and where they're at and where they want to be and not just goals for their substance use, but their goals for everything. I want to not freak out as much when... I get rejected. I want to feel better about who I am. I want to be more assertive at my job. And I also don't want to do cocaine anymore. And I don't want to be falling down on the concrete drunk. That's my goals. Yes. Let's do it. I love it. I wish that everybody could see my face because I'm smiling so big. I just love it. I love it. I love your approach. I I would think we are very similar in that regard. I just love it. I absolutely love it. Last thing I would love, can you please tell all of our listeners where they can find you? Sure. So my website is addictionprownyc.com. And I explain everything on that website. There are a few YouTube videos um, and I have a book. So that's something. And You uh, do have a book. What's the name of your book? And is it on Amazon? It is on Amazon. It's called The New Trend of Solving Addiction Problems. That is awesome. By Dr. Eric Fields. Yes. And I hope it's not a new trend anymore. I hope one day we can say like, well, yeah, of course, this is the way you deal with addiction. You know what? You're doing the good work. So I think that I think we're moving in that direction. Oh, Eric, it was so nice having you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. And that about does it for this week, guys, on the Get the Fuck Off podcast. Big thank you to Dr. Eric Fields. I love talking to him. He's so great. Um, If you guys want to be a guest on the Get the Fuck Off podcast, you can reach out to me, Andy, A-N-D-E-E, at getthefuckoff.com, or you can visit me on my website, getthefuckoff.com. I'm going to be back next week with another very special guest. Until then, guys, take care, enjoy the rest of your week, and we will talk very 